You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. I'm your host, as usual, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sean Carberry, a former correspondent for NPR in Kabul, among other things. He's currently a foreign policy writer and analyst. And uh, Sean actually wrote wrote a story for us in The Diplomat on Afghanistan's future way back in 2015. Uh, that was an interesting time because, as some of our listeners might recall, it was at the end of 2014 that the United States declared an end to combat operations in Afghanistan, of course, um, maintaining a presence in the country for limited counterterrorism reasons and uh, to advise and assist the Afghan National Forces as well. So, Sean, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, um, you know, I think this is, first of all, I think it's the first time I've had a former NPR reporter on the show. So uh, that's uh, that is a little exciting, given uh, given how much uh, um, I personally, you know, enjoy enjoy the uh, <laughs> the NPR experience. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, sure. I do want to ask you a little bit uh, before we get into the discussion today um, regarding the future of Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal that the Biden administration announced in mid-April and so forth. Just to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, can you begin by just telling us a little bit about your time in Afghanistan, the kinds of things you saw, what you reported on? Sure. And, you know, when I was there, it was it was definitely an interesting time and in, in time of transition. Um, I went in in the basically the summer of 2012 and was there until the end of 2014. And, you know, as people may recall, the end of 2014 was the end of the International Security Assistance Force era, the ISAF era of combat operations. And so, you know, technically on January 1st, 2015, the new mission began Resolute Support, which was focused on training and advising uh, Afghan forces. So leading up to the end of 2014, uh, the couple of years was all about transitioning security responsibility to Afghan security forces. So the U.S. and partner forces were gradually drawing down at that time. They were handing over bases and trying to push the Afghan forces more and more out on the lead for, for combat operations. So that was sort of the big picture on the, the security side of what was happening. And then uh, while I was there, the 2014 presidential election took place, uh, which was a, you know, a sort of a, a long running drama over the course right. of, of 2014. I mean, the, the first round of elections uh, was in April, and it wasn't until the very end of September that they inaugurated Ashraf Ghani as, as the president. So that was sort of a, uh, again, over the course of the summer of 2014, just uh, you know, really taking up all of the, the press's time in Kabul, because every day there was a new wrinkle. There was uh, an estimated uh, result, and then Abdullah Abdullah would typically object to it and then um, uh, basically indicate that he was going to uh, withdraw from the process and form his own yeah. government. So um, it, was, it was a really rocky period. So, uh, you know, again, my time in, in Afghanistan on the ground was really through this this process of this sort of transition from what had happened just before I got there, which was the the surge and the the peak of troop presence and this effort to really beat back the Taliban and then transition things over to Afghan forces. 
And, uh, you know, then as, as you alluded to, um, you know, in January of 2015, I wrote a piece for the, the diplomats sort of looking at where things were as a result of that transition. And just to, to you know, wrap up based on, on your question, I ended up um, in the summer of 2017 uh, going to work for the Defense Department Office of Inspector General as, at that time, the lead writer of their quarterly report on, on Afghanistan, Operation Freedom Sentinel, uh, under a construct called the Lead Inspector General. So we partnered with the State Department and USAID offices of Inspector General to issue these quarterly reports. And so I was a lead writer of that for a year, so continuing to focus on Afghanistan on a daily basis, and then became the managing editor of all of the lead inspector general reports. So it was still um, on a daily basis dealing with Afghanistan up until March of this year when I uh, left the government and um, you know have been uh, looking at things on my own and, uh, you know, in a position where, you know, I'm able to, to speak a little bit more uh, freely and, and candidly about Afghanistan than I could as a journalist or as a, uh, a government employee. Absolutely. No, I mean, I can't imagine a, a better guest actually to reflect on the last uh, six and a half years or so uh, since the end of combat operations, looking at what lies ahead uh, for the country. You know, I actually appreciated that you mentioned the 2014 election because I remember quite vividly uh, a friend of mine was actually a, an election observer on the ground, and I asked him to uh, pen his impressions for the diplomat. And at the time, of course, Things became very drawn out, and I recall, I think, uh, I ended up editing around 6,000 words of just very <laughs> detailed election observer commentary from around the country. Um, and really, I mean, when we look at the political future of Afghanistan, the uncertainty ahead, the sort of lack of unity, I mean, it really a lot of it goes back to that national unity government brokered by uh, by John Kerry. I remember him sort of flying in and sort of, you know, um, brokering that deal at the time. Uh, but anyways, I mean, you know, here we are in 2021. Uh, the Biden administration, of course, has announced that U.S. troops will withdraw by uh, September 11th, uh, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, a, a questionable sort of deadline for withdrawal, in, if you ask my opinion. But I want to sort of get a sense, uh, you know, from, from where you're sitting and the experience that, you know, you've had. So tell us a bit, I mean, first of all, what's what's really happened in Afghanistan, I mean, on the ground between 2014 and now? I mean, I know this is a really high-level kind of big-picture question, and we've sort of seen territorial gains um, against the Taliban, uh, you know, that's kind of waxed and waned. We've seen, um, of course, the Inspector General reports that haven't painted a very rosy picture on everything from um, corruption to civilian casualties. Um, what's what's the story that, you know, you sort of you sort of tell yourself and tell others about, about what's really happened in Afghanistan since the United States uh, drew down in 2014? or at the end of combat operations? So I, I look at it kind of in the the lens of um, the way I kind of, I framed it, frankly, in January of, of 2015 when that transition happened. And at the time, there was a lot of, you know, sort of celebration of that moment. And uh, General Campbell, who at the time was the, the commander, talking about all of the, the great progress and that, you know, the irreversible gains and things like that. And, uh, you know, he was sort of looking at from, from 2001 to that moment, how things had improved in Afghanistan, which, which was true. Uh, but I, I felt it was not quite the right measure because 
really the peak of things was around 2011 and 12 with the height of the, the surge in international investment in Afghanistan. And from that time over the transition period to the end of 2014, things were kind of in a, in a bit of a slow decline uh, as investments decreased in health sector and education, some things were sliding backwards. So I, that to me kind of set up this image of, of really you know, basically a, a tire with with a, a small hole in it. And if you pump air into it fast enough, it'll stay inflated. But as you dial back the rate that you're pumping into it, eventually the tire is going to start to flatten. And that's kind of the image to me of, of Afghanistan in some ways, really since 2011 or so, is that uh, the air is, is coming out and it's it's settling. And the question is, where is that, you know, that baseline, that landing point of what the country can essentially be, you know, largely on its own? Yeah. And and so that that's how I've watched it is to kind of see that that movement. And certainly, you know, in 2015 and 20. 16 um it was kind of a stalemate in in the security arena um as, you know as you mentioned there was some back and forth there's some gains and losses but you know really over the last few years it's been a fairly steady trajectory of the taliban gaining on on the security front uh even though the afghan forces are larger in number better equipped um they they still have not been able to to hold a lot of terrain especially in rural areas and you know it's understandable against an insurgency that um you know they're gonna move around where there is freedom of movement and where the government isn't and use those areas to to prepare in mass and and then start to encroach on urban areas uh, which, which is what's been going on so even though you know, Afghan security forces have improved as a force over the last three, four years or so. Uh, you know, they still have not been able to contain or, or defeat uh, the Taliban. So I, I think that's one dimension is, is the security front has been, you know, again, that tire has been been flattening a, a little bit. Right. Um, po you know, politically, it has been... You know, really kind of a, a another stagnant situation since the, the unity government. I mean, that, as a lot of people, I think, predicted at, at the time, uh, it, it was something where it was it was an artificial construct designed to solve a problem, which was a disputed election that neither party wanted to basically say that they lost. And they each had people with guns behind them who, uh, you know, were willing to, to fight for that. Uh, so an awkward situation was brokered where there was some power sharing. And, you know, then it took them months to agree on a cabinet. They were supposed to then enact elections reforms to improve future elections. That really didn't go anywhere. And so you had parliamentary elections that were, were delayed for several years uh, the Af the presidential election in 2019 was pushed back a little bit and once again took a long time to come to resolution and kind of ended up back in the same place. So really, politically, the country has been heavily treading water.
And uh, in the meantime, it, the Taliban has maintained its focus, uh, has continued to have uh, its its patrons uh, in in the region. Um, you know, Pakistan has continued its uh, its support despite Pakistan's efforts to also push a, a peace process. Uh, so you know, there's been political stagnation. There have economically, the country has has not improved, and so you have high unemployment and you know just a lot of difficulty in the country. So yeah, um, you well, know. So, well, so let me actually main, so, you know, the, yeah. So let sorry, me just uh, yeah jump in and ask you something. I mean, so look, I mean, you've been talking about the the state of the the Afghan uh, national security forces. The of course the continued. Um, difficult state of politics in the country. Meanwhile, the Taliban. I mean, you know, the Taliban has gone through a a period of change. I mean, I mean, certainly with um, uh, multiple changes in leadership now, with a bit of stability, um, a bit of uncertainty mm-hmm. after Mullah Omar's death, which of course happened in this period, or at least became known to have happened in this period. There was a bit of uncertainty around exactly when he died. But let me ask you. I mean, so you know, a lot of the um, when when President Biden announced the withdrawal. I mean, so first of all, you know, we can sort of go back and talk a bit about Biden's experience as vice president, particularly uh, when the decision making leading up to the surge was happening. Biden was the notable dissenter in the White House. And I Mm -hmm. think that sort of left a deep mark on how he thinks about Afghanistan. I mean, he sort of is deeply skeptical of, uh, first of all, you know, four stars in uniform telling him um, what needs to be done in Afghanistan. He, um, I mean, a a lot of the reporting recently very clearly indicated that Biden really, um, you know, he's the president of the United States. He's the commander in chief. Um, He did not, uh, he was not swayed by the military advice that he was given on why the United States needs to stay in Afghanistan. And a lot of that, I think, does go back to, to 2011 and earlier. But so now, I mean, a lot of the critiques of Biden, um, you know, in many ways, I mean, this used to be, I guess, a more original talking point. Now it's less so. Reminds one, and I think um, recently we had an author make this point of the diplomat uh, that, you know, it really reminds one of the debates that were happening about Vietnam in 72-73. And so, you know, that sort of has raised this concern that the United States is going to pull out and all of the things you just highlighted, the weak state of the economy, the Taliban getting their act together, gaining more territory, the state of politics in Afghanistan the state of the national army and security forces, all of this is eventually and inevitably going to lead to a fall of Saigon style moment when we eventually see the Taliban pursue what's really been their objective for the last 20 years, which is to return to political primacy in the country. I mean, you know, just just from where you're sitting and, and given your experience and given your assessments of uh, of the economy, the security situation, how worried are you about about that kind of a um, situation really playing out in uh, 2023, 2024, let's say? So I, I think there's a very reasonable likelihood of that, but I, I've kind of felt that was the trajectory for, for some time. And you know, I come back to my sort of simplistic analogy of, of the tire and that, um, you know, the, the Taliban, as you noted, has had, uh, you know, had some bumps in the road, but has still remained generally cohesive enough and frankly, highly motivated and that's been one of the differences all along between the Taliban and the Afghan government and then the sort of peripheral elite and power brokers outside of the government uh, is they have they've never really circled their wagons to a point where they came to a unified anti-Taliban position an agreement to, to work together for the good of the country and they've just continued to to splinter, look for opportunities for 
individual power, enrichment, um, and and so I've I've felt all along that that's been the key problem is that you know for all the U.S. and the international community is done, and despite a lot of things done wrong and a lot of mistakes, it has done a lot of good things in trying to develop and advance Afghanistan. Uh, but the Afghan elite and the Afghan government have not really embraced and internalized that. And that has given the Taliban an upper hand where they, they know what they want. They've known what they've wanted for a long time. Um, they're, they're very focused on that and they work militarily, politically towards that. And the Afghan elite side, um, just just hasn't come to a position that says this is our vision of Afghanistan and we are going to stand together and fight for it and we are all up against the Taliban and so you know the Taliban is currently uh, looking around to co-opt Afghan power brokers and looking at, at you know what deals it, it can cut ways it can sway people uh, to pick them off and further divide the Afghan establishment so uh, you know, I, I think there's rightfully a lot of criticism about U.S. policy in Afghanistan for, for a long time. Um, I think, to me, the biggest failure has been the failure to recognize the realities on the ground there and these conditions and the fact that you don't have a cohesive Afghan government and political elites that are, are willing to, to put divisions aside for, you know, the greater good of, of not having the Taliban come back into power. Um, so it, it's been said by diplomats and, and military officials over there is that, you know, we can't want it more than they do. And so and until and unless the, the Afghan elite, and that includes the people in control, the security forces who you know, are part of the political will to keep the security forces fighting and motivated, you know, if they're not going to come together, the international community can't force this to happen unless it wants to send in a couple hundred thousand troops and really bring the Taliban to its knees. So we know that's not going to happen. Um, and so to me, the trajectory has been set. It's just kind of a question of the glide path. And obviously a withdrawal will, I think, hasten some of that glide path. And the, the piece of it that remains to be seen and kind of the potential silver lining to what I've been talking about is if this moment does push the Afghan elite to say, hey, they really are leaving. We really do have to do this ourselves at this point. And that they do start to, to gel together and put some divisions aside and say, you know, if we sit here and bicker with each other or look for individual opportunities to, to gain, you know, power, influence, money, uh, it's, it's all going to benefit the Taliban. So, that to me is is the last piece of this where you know there's potential for them to uh to rally and to to make a difference but uh i i just think that the you know the conditions in afghanistan have always been kind of tilted uh in in the favor of of the taliban yeah. um and and i think that's been you know challenging the that I think the previous administration started to recognize that by right. 
changing U.S. policy to finally start negotiating directly with the Taliban and look for a way to find a softer landing to this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we haven't really talked about the uh, the uh, February 2020 Doha agreement, but, you know, we did a recent podcast on that. And I think, you know, listeners are sort of uh, familiar with, uh, um, you know, how that went. And of course, the more pertinent reality today is uh, the Biden administration's decision. I mean, so, you know, it's not just about what's happening inside Afghanistan. I mean, of course, I agree with you that that is a big part of the picture here. But, but you know, you said it yourself that Afghanistan, I mean, uh, you know, it has been uh, a playground for great powers uh, in in the uh, Asian heartland for a long time. Uh, part of, mm-hmm. I think, the Biden administration's case, I mean, at least this is part of the story the administration is telling itself, is that U.S. withdrawal will ultimately force um, countries like uh, India, China, Russia, uh, Iran, to a certain extent, to take a more active interest in Afghan security. You'll notice I didn't mention Pakistan there, because Pakistan obviously does have a different set of interests there. Um, but... You know, maybe maybe before we close out today, uh, you could say a little bit more about uh, your assessment of um, really how you expect these um, these other powers uh, that do have serious equities uh, in, in Afghanistan uh, for for better or worse, um, how how they're likely to um, approach the country uh, after after U.S. withdrawal. Sure, we've seen uh, certainly seen indications of that over the last year. Uh, you know, China in particular has um, taken a more active interest in trying to facilitate, uh, you know, peace process. You know, know, Pakistan, yes, it it has uh, put more pressure on the Taliban to to negotiate. Um, I think I sort of look at it through what are their common interests. So all of the, the regional countries do have a shared interest in that an unstable Afghanistan where terrorists are are present and operating doesn't benefit any of them. So first and foremost, they can all agree on the fact that they do not want a terrorist haven in their backyard. So, you know, you start from there. They, they can all agree on that. Um, beyond that, you know, there are some other common interests. Uh, Ideally, countries in the region would like to see stability so that there can be infrastructure uh, developed that benefits countries there to to move things uh, more easily, to have more port access. Um, You have the desire by all of them to prevent a refugee exodus from, from Afghanistan. Uh, and that affects, you know, uh, primarily Iran and Pakistan. Um, so, you know, there, there's some things to, to work with. And Iran in particular does have some strong and historic ties. And this is something back in 2012, I did some reporting on this sort of awkward triangular relationship between Iran, Afghanistan and the United States. And so you, you, know, you have the situation where Iran and the United States have been uh, you know, adversarial for, for a long time. It's had peaks and, and valleys, but generally, you know, they've been in a position where they could not work together over Afghanistan and look at common interests and see how Iran could increase investments in energy and economic aspects. But Iran has an interest in, in doing that. You know, historically, Iran was anti-Taliban. They have gradually started to hedge and and realized that, number one, the Taliban will be a a piece of Afghanistan going forward. It's a question of how big. 
And number two, obviously, the, the Iran started to to hedge to uh, to poke the U.S. in in the eye in, in Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, Iran can certainly do some things in terms of investing um, and supporting uh, Afghanistan that that can be positive. Uh, China certainly wants stability. It wants a country where there is some potential economic gain. Uh, it certainly wants to contain things to prevent anything that uh, motivates uh, any groups in China that the Chinese government is concerned about, obviously, in, in the west of the country. Uh, and, and the Uyghurs, China does not want to see anything that... Um, would support that would be a demonstration effect or would uh, give any haven for, you know, Central Asian uh, militants. Um, you know, Pakistan and India are, are, you know, it sort of comes back to them as, as the tough nuts in this. And, you know, Pakistan still uh, need desire for strategic depth in, in Afghanistan. Uh, which has been a problem because India certainly has played a, a positive role in terms of development and investment. Um, but, you know, as India gains, that creates angst in Pakistan and then that creates different actions. And so, you know, Pakistan wants really a, a compliant regime in Afghanistan and wants minimal Indian presence uh, and investment there uh, so that you know that's one where there, there really are I think some some clashes between regional powers I don't think you know Iran Russia China really have any areas that they clash in Afghanistan um, you know how this is all going to play out it, it it does in large part hinge on how active U.S. diplomacy remains in Afghanistan and the extent to which uh, the U.S. does continue to push and does look for opportunities to start convening some of the regional powers and, and look for opportunities to cooperate, collaborate, and, um, you know, manage a transition. Right. Uh, you know, if, uh, if there's a vacuum, then, you know, all bets are off. But... I do think that the Biden administration is cognizant of these factors and is looking at this. And Secretary Blinken has made comments to this effect about maintaining robust diplomacy and investment. So this isn't simply a uh, you know redo of, of the Soviets uh, in the 80s, but that there will be continued investment and efforts to look at who in the region can bring positive things to bear to uh, to promote stability in Afghanistan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think uh, one of the points I'd echo is that I think a lot will really come down to how effectively the United States is able to uh, diplomatically interact. I mean, not only with the Pakistani government, but really uh, weigh on the decision making that Pakistan's uh, military intelligence complex will um, actually make different decisions about Afghanistan. I'm not too optimistic personally about that, but that I think certainly will be a part of the uh, post-withdrawal landscape here. Um, anyway, Sean, so we are unfortunately at the end of our time, but I really do want to thank you for uh, coming on today and, and sharing your experiences uh, and your insight on, on Afghanistan and Afghanistan's future. Thanks a lot for taking the time today. You're welcome. My pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot.
For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do so. You can do that at any place you get your podcast. It really helps get the word out about the show and um, helps us expand. And as always, if you have suggestions for future episodes, uh, please do feel free to either tweet at me or email me. I'm very happy to take those into consideration. So thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.